together too. Let's begin with a word of prayer. We thank you again, Lord, that we have the privilege of coming to you, that we can come with boldness because we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us and, and carries our prayers and makes them acceptable to you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who also aids our prayers with groans and utterances that are too deep for us. We thank you that you hear us, that you love us, and that you bid us to come to you and to share with you our needs. Lord, tonight we need to be nourished and encouraged and strengthened by your holy word. We do ask that you might give us encouragement and that that encouragement would be used to make us better warriors in your kingdom, better servants of your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, last week we looked at the first 10 verses, which is quite a thing for me to get through 10 verses in one night. And uh, tonight, Lord willing, we'll get through eight more. My goal is to get through verse 18, but I'd like to read the entire uh, section, verses 1 to 18, as we get underway. So Hebrews 10 beginning our reading at the first verse. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw near. Else would they not have ceased to be offered. Because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I am come, in the roll of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you would not, neither had pleasure therein, the which are offered according to the law. Then has he said, Lo, I am come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest indeed stands day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices the which can never take away sins. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after he has said, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart, and upon their mind also will I write them. Then he says, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And thus far the reading of God's word. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, gets underway by reminding us that the law did not contain the reality, did not bring the substance of God's promise, but contained only a foreshadow. 
the law having a shadow of good things to come. It was always looking ahead, never adequate in itself, never was intended to be the final regime, if you will, of salvation. The law having a shadow of the good things to come could never, with those sacrifices, and notice the emphasis now upon the continuation of them, which continually, year by year, they offer. That law could never make perfect those who draw near. We go on to be reminded that the blood of bulls and goats in and of itself is not adequate, and the Jews of the Old Covenant should have realized the inadequacy of their sacrifices just because they were repeated. If the sacrifice was repeated, it was not good enough to begin with. And then we have the excursus on uh, Psalm 40 about God does not take pleasure in whole burnt offerings and sacrifice, but rather in someone who comes to do his will. Jesus comes and does the will of God. The nice thing is in the providence of God, last week's uh, Bible study was just you know, foundational for last uh, Lord's Day sermon as well. Jesus offered, uh, finally, a life of obedience that made it possible for a sacrifice to be acceptable to God, and that sacrifice was made in our behalf because our lives are inadequate before God. In offering that kind of sacrifice, he put away forever all the old covenant sacrifices, which never would have done the job in the first place. Verse 10, by which... That is, by, the found, by Jesus establishing the second covenant in the place of the first, which was taken away. By this, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's where we ended last week. We begin tonight then at verse 11, where the author says, And every priest indeed stands day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, the which can never take away sins. The author rehearses his argument again. Are some of you getting tired of this argument? You're saying, well, okay, I've got the point. Repetition of sacrifice means the sacrifice is inadequate. But you see, he's really talking about the same kind of argument. He's, he's issuing the same line of reasoning, but his evidence now is of a different sort. Previously... He has been arguing on the basis of the recurring days of atonement that take place, what, year by year. I think it's verse 3. But in those sacrifices there is remembrance of sins year by year. His argument up to this point has been based on the illustration of yearly sacrifices made at the Day of Atonement. The very fact that every year another Day of Atonement came around, another Day of Atonement comes around, and another Day of Atonement comes around, shows that atonement was never fully accomplished. But now our author, in verse 11, changes the focus. His illustration is every priest indeed stands day by day ministering. What's the difference? There's two that I want you to pick up on. Joe? Well, the priest is inadequate in both lines of reasoning, but the illustrations change. I've given one away already. The first was yearly. What's this one? Daily. That's right. Now he looks at the daily sacrifices. You see, sacrifices were not offered just on the Day of Atonement. Sacrifices had to be offered to God every day, and not just once a day. There had to be a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And so it's kind of like the author says, now that I've opened you up to this line of argument, let me really press it home. 
It's not even that every year they had to do this. Every day and twice a day they had to do this. Their sacrifices were never adequate. Now, in the case of the Day of Atonement, who offered the sacrifice? The high priest. One special dignitary, one person in the hierarchy, the highest, actually, the high priest. But now, in verse 11, he's not talking about the high priest, is he? How do I know that? It doesn't say high priest? So it, what he says is every priest. So now he's talking about all those who offer sacrifice, and he's talking not about the yearly, but the daily sacrifices. But now, having noted those differences, the fact is that the argument has the same conclusion. The old order involved ceaseless repetition of sacrifices, which, just for that reason, never really took away sin. The author is going to introduce something new, though. Not just changing the illustration from yearly to daily, from high priest to every priest. He's going to introduce something very significant in verse 12 when he says, But Christ, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The new consideration which the author focuses upon at this point is that the old covenant Levitical priest stood before God. So what? Big deal. They stood, right? This author finds a lot of theological significance in the fact that they stood before God. And what he's going to say is, by contrast, when Jesus finished his priestly work, he sat down. The author is really insightful. Of course, he has the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But, I mean, from a human standpoint, so he looks at the repetition, yearly, then daily. He says, what does that tell you? He says, you should have known all along these were inadequate sacrifices. But he says there's something else. The high priest always stood when he did his work. High priest could never, there's no chair put in the temple for the high priest to do his work and go sit down. High priest didn't come out of the temple and go sit down. High priest, to do his work, had to stand. And what we want to do is elaborate a bit on the significance of that. Kent? Well, I was just going to say that doesn't sitting down um, imply There may be some Semitic imagery there about being equal with God, but the significance here is twofold, and I'm going to change the subject later on in a few minutes in our Bible study to the kingly suggestion of his sitting down at the right hand of God and so forth. But right now it's priestly. The point he's, being, the point he's stressing is that when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down. That's right. The new consideration of sitting down points to the fact that the Levitical service was always in the standing, active mode, never finished. But Jesus, having finished the work that was necessary for our salvation, didn't have to continue to stand. He sat down. The work was completed. That's a really interesting thought. Why could Christ take his seat? Verse 12 tells us, because he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever having offered the one and only sacrifice necessary for all eternity to take care of our sins, there was nothing left to be done. And so he sat down, his work being completed. 
If you turn back to Hebrews 1, verse 3, you notice that the author has already indicated this is important to him. Who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he made purification of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The priestly work of Jesus came to an end in terms of its sacrificial dimension. The sacrifice having been made was completed and um, adequate for all time. Jesus could sit down. It was finished. And the effect that it brought about was for all time. If it's for all time, there's no need to reinforce it. If it's for all time, there's no need to repeat it. Let's turn to John 17, verse 4. Jesus' own testimony is the same about the accomplishment of the work that was given to him to do. John 17, 4. I glorified, this is Jesus praying, his high priestly prayer, as it's called. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And then turn to John 19, verse 30. One of the best known and remembered words of Jesus from the cross. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. It is finished. No work left to be done. Nothing incomplete. Totally adequate for all time. Could the high priest ever say, having offered up the priest, I mean, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, could any of the regular priests on the day-by-day basis that they offered sacrifice have said, it's finished, all done, don't have to worry about sacrifice anymore. No, nope. tomorrow morning another sacrifice will be called for, and tomorrow night, and then morning, then night, and the Day of Atonement, and on 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 and on. You can't appreciate, you cannot feel psychologically what this meant for the Jews. They had always expected sacrifice to be made. Jesus, once for all, put an end to it. He sat down. It is finished. Totally accomplished. Now I want to point out a couple of theological implications of the fact that the work of Christ, the sacrificial work of Christ, is completed. If the sacrificial work of the Savior is thoroughly completed and finished, then nothing can add to it. If it's been done once and for all, then nothing can be added to it. What theological system pretends to add something to the sacrificial work of Christ? Rome, exactly. The Romanist system maintains that what is being done in the Mass, day by day and week by week, begin to sound like a repetition of what the author was talking against, Day by day and week by week, the body of Christ is made in the Mass and sacrificed again, re-sacrificed and re-sacrificed and re-sacrificed because what Jesus did on the cross atones only for our pre-baptismal sins. The sins committed after baptism must be dealt with and God must be satisfied and the work of Christ does not cover those we must satisfy God with respect to our post-baptismal sins. And so Jesus is offered again and again and again, and we do penance, we go to the priest, we say the Hail Marys and so forth, and we get indulgences, whatever it may be, and eventually by adding to the work of Christ, we might be saved. And notice I say might be saved. 
No Roman Catholic who knows his or her theology can ever say, I know that I am saved. They can't. They can hope last rites will be given to them. They can hope that they've done enough Hail Marys, that their penance is acceptable. But you see, by having to add to the work of Christ, you can never be sure that you've done enough. Wasn't that the tyranny that Martin Luther lived under? Luther said, I never had a conscience set free. Because I knew I was far more wicked than any of the things the priest gave me to do. And so Luther added to his own penance. And he would beat himself. And he would stay up all night long begging God to forgive him. If only he could have understood, and eventually he did, of course, the significance of this, that Jesus, when he had once and for all offered a sacrifice for sin forever, sat down. Jesus said, it's done. Nothing can be added to it now. It's finished. Isn't that comforting to you? Boy, that is to me. Because there is down in our wicked human hearts, even in the heart of this preacher, the tendency to want to add to the work of Christ, to satisfy God in my own way. It's not only a great relief, but it's theologically correct to say, God, I can't add to your work, so I won't try. The life that I will now live will be a life of gratitude, not a life of merit. I give up. My only hope in life and death is what? That I belong to a faithful Savior. And so Romanism is not just... Um, uh, a system that stands over against us, and we have this school spirit that says, hey, let's be Calvinistic and not Romanist. Romanism is detrimental to the human heart and soul. It's theologically mistaken, but it's also agonizing in a way that God never intended. Can't add to the work of Christ. Let me ask you this. If we can't repeat the work of Christ, cannot add anything to it, contrary to Romanism, can we take anything away from it? The opposite mistake is made by Arminianism. Arminianism says you can take something away from the work of Christ. Did you know that? And here's how it goes. The Arminian says, Christ came and died for sins. All but one. He died for every single individual. But if you're guilty of the sin of unbelief, then his work will not be effective for you. There is a way to take away from the work of Christ by your own refusal to take the gifts God offers to you. I'll bet most of you who have been in evangelistic services or have heard preachers who have put it that way. Jesus did it all, now he's waiting for you. But if Jesus is waiting for you, what that suggests is you can take something away from what Jesus did. But we can't. He sat down. And when he sat down, what that meant is, it's done. Totally accomplished. Nothing to worry about now. And again, I was on this theme a few weeks ago, and you'll think that I'm kind of riding a hobby horse if I stay on it long tonight. That is such a great comfort to me to know that I can't take anything away from what Christ did, and the only hope that I have is Him and Him alone. I don't have to worry about my doing something to make up the difference, or my possibly falling from grace even, and thereby detracting from the work of Christ. He will be successful because he accomplished salvation for his people. Now, what did Christ come to do? And what has been accomplished by his priestly work? Verse 14 answers that question. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. 
When Jesus made that one offering, those for whom he died were perfected forever. Now what does that mean, perfected? For this language, you need to look at verses 1 and 10 to remember the special way in which the author is using terms like perfected and sanctified. Verse 10 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of those things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw near. The author here is, is thinking of perfecting in the sense of making us suitable to come before God. The sacrifices never prepared sinners to actually come before God, did not perfect them, did not put them in a condition where they were fit for heaven, to use the language of the children's catechism. Sacrifices couldn't do that. In verse 10, the author says, by which we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here, he's using sanctification, as I told you last week, in the overall sense of the entire experience of redemption, so that all those distinct acts in God's saving chain of events, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, and so all those things, he puts together under one rubric, which other authors of the New Testament do. Sometimes the whole saving process is called reconciliation. Sometimes it's you know, called uh, a sanctification or justification. Here, he's using sanctification as those who have been set aside for God. So in Hebrews 10, verse 14, we learn that Jesus, by one offering, therefore it doesn't have to be repeated and it's completely adequate, one offering has perfected, has put us in a position of standing before God, and he did this so that we might forever stand before God, and he did this for those who are set aside, those who are sanctified, those who are consecrated to salvation by God's mercy. You'll notice, um, I hope, the author's affirmation of the deity of the Holy Spirit now as we go on. Verse 15 says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after he has said, This is the covenant that I will make with them. This is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, verse 33. But in Jeremiah 31, 33, the one who is speaking, according to the Hebrew, is Yahweh, Jehovah. Jehovah says this. Now the author of Hebrew says, and the Holy Spirit said. And so the Holy Spirit is Jehovah, as far as the author of Hebrews is considered. Do you understand, then, the significance of that? He takes it for granted that the Holy Spirit is Jehovah. Moreover, he assumes the inspiration of the prophets because it's Jeremiah who is speaking, and yet he says the Holy Spirit bears witness, and he is the one who says. Second Peter 1.21, remember, we are assured that the prophets of old were born along by the Holy Spirit when they brought their message. And so the doctrine that we affirm today, the inspiration of the scriptures and the full deity of the Holy Spirit, are in one stroke proven by this one verse, verse 15. Now, the quotation of Jeremiah 31 is meant to be climactic, the clinching move in the argument regarding the perfection and the finality of Christ's priesthood and his atoning sacrifice by which the new covenant is realized. He's re-quoting. In chapter 8, he has quoted Jeremiah 31 about the New Covenant, and now he comes back and he does it again. And the reason he does it again, because he wants to say, now that you understand the significance of Christ's priesthood, now you understand the significance of Christ's atoning work, the point is he brought in a new covenant. 
This is what Jeremiah was talking about. And what is the final promise cited here from the new covenant? And I will remember their iniquities no more. Verse 18 makes clear that because God no longer remembers sins, because the new covenant has now come, which doesn't repeat sacrifice, which once and for all does away with sin by the sacrifice of Christ's body. God no longer remembers sins. We've been per- those sins have been perfectly remitted, and for that reason there is no more offering for them. No more offering for sin. The repetition of sacrifice at this point will have to be taken as an insult to the Son of God. The repetition of sacrifice at this point will have to indicate antagonism to the gospel, will have to be repudiation of God's work of salvation. If that's true, if the offerings that uh, have been made for sin previously have now been put away once and for all by the sacrifice of Christ, those who repeat those offerings are those who want to go back to them in a purified Judaism, either in Jerusalem or in the Dead Sea community, whichever it may be. Those who want to go back to them are doing nothing less than repudiating any hope of benefiting from the work of Christ. And that's why in verse 26 a similar language is used. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. I'm afraid many people read verse 26 and forget its connection with verse 18. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. What the author is getting at is, you can't go back to Judaism, you can't apostatize and expect to be saved because there is no more offering for sin. God doesn't accept those offerings anymore. So if you go back, you're giving up any salvation, any hope of salvation that you would have had. You see the connection between the two verses? Now there's an intervening paragraph we'll be studying in due time, but I want you to see that connection right now because when we come to this verse, we have to remember it's a specific kind of apostasy that the author's talking about. The apostasy of those Jews who forsake the gathering of themselves together as Christians and go back into Judaism. He says, if we turn back from the Savior now, there is no more offering for sin. You, what you're going back to does not contain a valid offering for sin. Okay, Brian? So, this is not some horrifying thing that you can commit to sin and all of a sudden Christ no longer is a sacrifice for your sins. All he's declaring in that verse 26 is that there is no other sacrifice for sins other than Christ's sacrifice for sin. I, if I understand your question correctly, this is not a, the horrifying threat that many people read it as that you know you can fall away from grace and so forth. Yes, it, it, it has a specific historical reference that those who go back to Judaism and repudiate Christ need to realize there is no offering for sin there. It's impossible now that they can be saved through Judaism. But I would say this, there is still a general point that is made that anyone who gives up Christ for another religious system needs to realize there is no salvation outside. So you give up Jesus, there's no more offering for sin. That's right. This is not talking about perfectionism so that Christians who sin, um, this can be used as some kind of uh, ramrod against them. As a matter of fact, it talks about sinning willfully. 
And of course, that willful sinning means a repudiation, saying, um, yes, I know it's sinful, and I know that this is going to separate me from God, but that's exactly what I want to accomplish. I don't want to go this way anymore. And the author says, well, there's no sacrifice for sin for you. Because, see, if you won't accept Christ's sacrifice, there isn't any other. We'll be coming back to that and studying it at some length. And I, my guess is I'll probably have to go through the unpardonable sin discussion and other things that we've had previously because um, before our two congregations got together, we spent some time on Hebrews 6, which is the real you know, center of uh, turmoil. Of what does that mean You know, if a person does the following? Uh, but we, we'll spend some time on it later. Uh, Paula, you had your hand up. Exactly. The Judaizers were willing to go with Christ as long as they can incorporate a legalistic understanding of salvation and the ceremonial law. And so it, it's good that we separate those two. Judaizers are, in terms of their profession, on the Christian side of things. Paul says they're not Christians at all, they're anathema. But nevertheless, from what the Judaizers said, they weren't saying prefer Moses to Jesus. They're saying let's combine the two. What this author in the book of Hebrews is worried about is those who are giving up Jesus for Moses. So that, that's a good question. I, you know, I had never thought to draw that distinction previously. I'm glad you brought it up. Okay, now, the rest of the evening I want to spend time on discussing, we're going to go back and look at a specific part of this. Where is Jesus seated? The whole point... The whole point has been, when Jesus offered this once and for all sacrifice that has perfected us forever, he sat down. Right. <clears throat> but there's something else the author wants to say. Where did he sit? At the right hand of God. The question, where did Jesus sit, moves us from a consideration of his priestly work to a consideration of his kingly role. Of course, those two have all got to be harmonized. It's a sad thing that in the Christian world and throughout Christian history, I'm afraid, uh, different churches, different preachers have tended to emphasize either the prophetic work of Jesus, Jesus the teacher, or the priestly work of Jesus, Jesus our Savior who offers the atoning sacrifice, or the kingly work of Jesus. The author of Hebrews has it all put together, though. Jesus sat down once he offered the sacrifice for sin, but sitting down, he sat down where? At the right hand of God. He is a priest and a king, and I want to talk about Jesus the king. Is the fact that Jesus took a seat mean that he's completely inactive? <clears throat> he's inactive when it comes to sacrifice, but is he not doing anything right now? What is Jesus doing right now? You know the answer to that question. Okay, I need to call on someone. We're getting a lot of answers. Way back here, Willie. He's interceding for his saints. That's one thing he's doing. Um, chapter 7, verse 25. Wherefore also he's able to save to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. And then chapter 9, verse 24. The author tells us, For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. So that's one of the things Jesus is doing. He's interceding to God perpetually for us. What else is he doing for us according to the book of Hebrews? 
Turn back to chapter 2, verse 18, if I can help you. 2.18 For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Jesus can support his people in temptation and trial. He can help us. He intercedes to God and he reaches down and helps us. Chapter uh, 4, verse 14 and following. Having then a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who um, can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who is in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So draw near to, in boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Jesus helps and succors his people. He supports his people. And he intercedes to God in their behalf. So we know that um, Jesus is not inactive. However, the answers that we've gotten thus far from the book of Hebrews have been, we might put it this way, answers about Jesus' internal work, the work of Jesus internal to his church, dealing with his people. Is that all Jesus is doing? Does Jesus have any external work that he's doing? Is Jesus doing anything in the world? Now, of course, immediately you have people who rise up and say, no, we don't have anything to do with the world, right? Jesus won't be affecting the world until he comes back again and establishes the kingdom in this world and so forth and so on. The author of Hebrews doesn't hold that theology. He's pretty bold about it. He says, but he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. Here we're not talking about Jesus' people, whom he suckers, for whom he intercedes. Now we're talking about Jesus' enemies. And Jesus is working in our behalf, but he's doing something to those who are our enemies as well. And what's he doing? He's putting them under his feet. That's right. Kent? I've heard people who try to repeat that verse, they say, well, yeah, he's expecting that because he knows the millennium is coming. When he comes back the second time. Oh, we're going to deal with that. Those who think the expectation of Jesus is awaiting some earthly millennium in the future. The author tells us that Jesus began that expectation when? When he sat down. When did Jesus get enthroned at the right hand of God? I'm sorry? At the ascension, exactly. He passed through the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God. And from that point on, the only thing he's expecting is that his enemies be put under his feet. Now, some people say, yeah, well, he's going to wait there a long time for it to happen. The New Testament teaches us it is happening and will continue to happen until it's complete. You see, the idea is not that Jesus is holding back saying, well, someday God's going to you know, make my enemies subject to me. At the ascension, he began to rule. He didn't just take up a waiting posture for the rule to somehow come in later. He began to rule. And now what's happening is that his enemies are being put under his feet. He is subduing his enemies. Now this is in fulfillment of Psalm 110. Let's go back and look at Psalm 110 real briefly. It turns out that this psalm is uh, repeatedly cited by the author of Hebrews, both in terms of the theme of Jesus' enemies being subdued, but also in terms of the theme of the priesthood after Melchizedek. Okay, Psalm 110. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's often quoted. Jehovah said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jehovah will send forth a rod 
of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people offer themselves willingly in the day of your power and holy array out of the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Jehovah has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand will strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill the places with dead bodies and strike through the head in many countries. He will drink of the brook in the way. Therefore will he lift up the head. Psalm 110 brings together the two themes of priesthood and kingly reign. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and God will strike through kings in your day. And in your day, your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your power. God will draw a people to himself in the day of his power. And in the same day, he's going to be subduing enemies under Jesus' feet. In Hebrews 10, verse 13, then, we have a, a, an allusion to Psalm 110. Henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. The author of this epistle has also cited that in chapter 1, verse 13. But of which of the angels did he say at any time, Sit on my right hand till I make your enemies the footstool of your feet? This is a significant verse for him. This, this messianic psalm is pervasive in Hebrews. The, the theme of Melchizedek appears in chapters 5, 6, and 7. But now notice, we've already seen in chapter 1 the theme of subduing his enemies under his feet. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this, we have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's been seated at God's right hand. And then chapter 12, verse 2, comes back to the same theme of the enthronement of Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is enthroned. And it's not just the book of, um, of Hebrews, if we had the time, which we don't. You'll see that all of the apostles stress this enthronement of Christ and subduing of his enemies theme. You'll see it in chapter 2 of Acts, verses 34 and 35. You'll see it in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 and 21. You'll see it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28. And in Ephesians 1, verse 22. And Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. And 1 Peter 3, verse 22. I mean, it's just pervasive in the New Testament. Tony. Yes, the imagery of Jesus being seated ties in with the imagery of the priesthood. Sitting down means his priestly or sacrificial work is done. Jesus stands up to receive Stephen into his presence. Jesus honors Stephen, the first martyr, by standing up. And uh, that's, that's uh, I think, a symbol of reception and, uh, and honoring him. But that doesn't mean that he's in a perpetual standing position symbolically. He's seated on a throne, priestly work being done, kingly victory now being accomplished. I'm sorry? First uh, Peter three twenty-two. Now, in Hebrews 9, 28, we read that Christ will appear a second time, but he hasn't appeared a second time. Do you ever ask yourself, why not? 
Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? What's Jesus waiting for? Now you turn to chapter 10 and the author tells you what he's waiting for. Henceforth expecting or waiting until all his enemies have been made the footstool of his feet. What's he waiting for? The universal subjugation of all opponents. That's what he's waiting for. Um, in chapter 2, verse 8, the author of Hebrews has looked back to um, Psalm 8 and picked up this theme from Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6. He says, um, Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject. Uh, yeah, that's right, subject to him, pardon me. But now we see not yet all things subjected to him. The author tells you why Jesus hasn't come back. We don't see everything subjected to him yet. Now, I, I find it very hard to see how people miss this. I mean, it's not real complicated, is it? He's going to appear a second time. What's he waiting for? Subjugation of all his enemies. As previously been said, we don't yet see that the case. We do see Jesus enthroned. Praise be to God. But we don't see that all of his enemies have been put under his feet. Well, now, when will they be put under his feet? That's the question, in a sense, that Kent was asking earlier. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul answers that very obviously, I think. First Corinthians 15, I'll begin reading at verse 23. But each in his own order, that is resurrection order, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, he rose previously as the down payment and first fruits. Then they that are Christ will rise when? At his coming. And what will follow his coming? The millennium? A thousand year gap? An earthly rule with bazookas from Jerusalem? No, it says, they that are Christ will rise at his coming, then comes the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power. You see, when we rise from the dead, we're not going to go into an earthly millennium. At that point, he will have abolished all rule and authority and power, and he's going to hand over the kingdom to the Father and say, it's done. You wanted me to conquer the world, I did it. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be abolished is death. Now, how will we know when death is abolished? When we rise from the dead. From the dead. And so when Jesus returns, we will rise from the dead, and that will be the end. He will reign till he's put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that he's going to conquer is death. And he'll do that when he has us rise from the dead and turns over the kingdom to his father. If you put Hebrews, well, you don't need the two of them in tandem, but if you look at Hebrews and look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you can't be anything but a post-millennialist. Jesus is going to return after his kingly reign. And what he's going to do prior to his return is make all of his enemies subject to him. Okay, Ken? Um, there are those that make a point that if Christ is sitting on the right, the throne on the right hand of God, um, he has. Oh, well, not all the enemies have been put under his feet because they're still out there opposing him. To put, to put an enemy under your feet, you have to remember the ancient imagery. When one king conquered another, 
if that king wasn't actually killed or executed for his opposing the king. The symbol of subjugation was he would come and he would bow down to the ground and the conquering king would put his foot on his neck, making that the footstool of his feet. And so, you know, you're at home watching TV, you put your feet out on a footstool, we think of it in terms of casual imagery, but this is the imagery of conquest. My foot is upon your neck. Now, Jesus is going to put his foot upon the neck of all opponents. Well, they may be in their hearts enemies. But what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 is we don't yet see everything subject to him. And if those who have tell, are telling you this say, it's enough that he's ascended on high, so now everything is subject to him, then the author of Hebrews made a mistake. Because he says we don't see everything subject to him yet. The, the premillennialist might answer this argument. He might say, um, if Christ fulfilled his prophet's essence, if you will, in... His, before his first coming, and then at his, second, at his first coming, he fulfilled the office of priest, and in the millennium, he'll fulfill the office of king. And I've heard it, it just Where's the biblical evidence for that dichotomy? Um, this is just how it's been explained that in tapes that I've heard. I don't yeah, well, it's not good enough just to come up with some grand scheme. Where's the biblical evidence for that breakdown? According to, the, according to the apostles, he is the great prophet that we've been expecting. That's stated not about his pre-incarnation ministry, but the, incarnation, the ministry of his incarnation. He also is declared to be a king over Israel that grants repentance. And of course, we see that he's declared to be a prophet, as, I mean a priest as well, the book of Hebrews. And so whoever is saying that may come up with some very interesting schema but you see, it bothers me when people impose some kind of extra-scriptural scheme on the scriptures. Just demand inductive evidence. Give me some evidence. That's the way the, the New Testament looks at the three offices of Christ. That's, that's where they start when they say that he doesn't conquer death until the end of the millennium at the, at the final battle, rebellion or whatever. That's when he conquers death. And, and rising from the dead, that's not conquering death because there's still going to be death and things in the millennium. And so they, he's He's just saying, well, Christ will fulfill his kingly rule. And of course, that's presupposed that his kingly rule will be in the millennium. He sets up his kingdom. Then you'll have the final rebellion. Well, at least I agree that he's going to finish his kingly rule at the end of the millennium. Right. See, we don't disagree on the end. Right. We disagree on the beginning. The question is, when did he take up his rule? Right. And every bit of evidence in the New Testament says he did so at his ascension. Jesus ascended and sat down at the right hand of God. That is Semitic imagery for enthronement. He is the king. And Jesus said that. He said, if I cast out demons, you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, so uh, the argument there, I don't need to deal with this preposterous scheme of things. I just need to point out the kingdom of God has been established on earth already. We're not waiting for that to happen. Tony. In response to... The question earlier, do we want to talk about the subjection at this point um, in the language of uh, the already, not yet, in principle already, yes. practically not yet? Yes, we could put it this way. Jesus is right now the king over all the nations de jour. He's going to become the king de facto. David Arnold, what does that mean? 
Yeah. By right, God the Father has given to his Son the nations of the earth. They are his. In fact, he is now subduing them. D-Day is going to lead to V-Day, right? D-Day has come. V-Day is yet ahead. And the victory of Jesus is becoming more and more manifest through history. And the only reason people don't see that, to be very honest with you, is because they expect the victory of Jesus to be accomplished like that. If it isn't done in a short period of time, something dramatic over a five-year or five-day or five-week period, then um, they just don't see it. How about 500 years and another 500, another 500? Why is it that we have to shorten history? If you look at history, you know, in, in terms of the long haul, Jesus has been demonstrating his victory. You know, throughout Western history, he's been establishing his kingdom. Yeah, ups and downs, better and worse days in the church, short run. Long run, I mean, the Christians used to worship in the catacombs and were thrown to the lions. Okay? In our day, is that true? No. There has been great progress for the kingdom. In terms of uh, the day in which Jesus was first declared, superstition and religious idolatry dominated the world. Christianity has pushed that back and pushed that back, and we have a lot further to go. But most all the nations have heard, you know, the Christian message, and it's being established. And even in the third world, in Korea and so forth, we still see the missionary push. We need to, you know, really take heart. Jesus is pushing for victory. Um, Lori. Before Jesus became incarnate, he was with the Father and was upon the Father's throne with him. But the language of being seated at the right hand of God is not the language of the divine throne of God. It's the language of the messianic throne. Last week in Presbytery, I asked a series of questions that called for that distinction to be made. This is what we call the mediatorial kingship of Jesus, where now he's king not in the sense that he's God and he rules over all, that's the providential rule of God. All nations are subject to God's dominion because he's sovereign. But God is also going to bring those nations which are subject to his sovereignty to confess his name and to honor him and to bow before him. And that is the mediatorial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's in terms of that kingdom that Jesus is, is, is subduing his enemies. And of course, the language of putting the foot upon the neck sounds violent and harsh. But when Jesus puts his foot upon the neck of his opponents, that's very gracious, isn't it? It means we become his servants. We become his children. We become actually his brothers. Yes? Okay. Before he became incarnate, he was not the Messiah. He was the promised Messiah, but he was not the Messiah. But he still was God the Son. He was God the Son, but he was not God the Son when Son is used in the Messianic sense. That's another thing we don't have time to study tonight. But you need to remember that Son of God is not only a designation of deity, it's also a designation of the Messiah in the Bible. And so Jesus is Son of God in both senses. He is Son of God as the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. But he's also son of God as the chosen one, 
This day have I begotten thee, the one who is chosen by God to be the ruler over all. Psalm 2, kiss the son. That doesn't mean simply kiss the second member of the Trinity. That means kiss the one God has appointed to sit on his holy hill, the Messiah. And so it's both at the same time. But we, we must remember, and this may be the first time that it's dawned on some of us, that there is a difference between Jesus before his incarnation and Jesus returning to heaven. He returns to heaven as what? The victorious Savior. He was the Son of God, always will be the Son of God. But now that he's returned to heaven, he returns as the King, who is the Savior of men, the God-man. He was not the God-man before that. Now he's the God-man who has accomplished salvation. He comes back as the mediator of God's people. So, I mean, that's really exciting uh, theology. You need to kind of appreciate that. What has Jesus done? I'm not going to get... I have a lot more I want to say about this. Why the delay then in Christ's ultimate victory in history? We've already answered the question why he's waited to come back. He's waiting to come back until he subdues all of his enemies. But why isn't he doing it? Why isn't he doesn't just break in and get this over with? Well, for the sake of prolonging the day of grace, that's why. For the sake of extending the opportunity to know him at, in terms of the day of his power, offering yourself willingly in the day of his power rather than to be struck through in his wrath. If you look at uh, 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to you, word, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Isn't that great? He says, God is patient, not willing that any should perish. Not any of you who have been chosen, not any who are part of his kingdom. And that's the only reason history continues. You need to remember that. The only reason there's going to be a Friday morning is because God is still bringing people into his kingdom. The only reason there's going to be a month of May this year is because God is bringing people into his kingdom. And the only reason there'll be a 1989 is because God is bringing people into his kingdom. He's long-suffering, not wishing to see those whom he has chosen to perish. And the day is going to come when the kingdom is full and Jesus has subdued his enemies and then God will call it quits. It's all over. Can't. Yes, I do. What we are taught in the Bible is that, that there's a two, two sides to the kingdom Jesus establishes. There is, he already establishes his kingdom in history, and that kingdom is growing, and then he will consummate his kingdom. As Tony earlier said, there's the already and the not yet dimension. Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That assumes that the kingdom's not fully here. He also says, if I'm casting out demons, the kingdom of God is upon you. He comes preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Now, how can you put those two together? You have to have that twofold understanding. He's established his kingdom, but there's work to be done. And then when he returns, it will be to consummate his kingdom. And so, yes, it's like leaven infiltrating all areas of life. It's like a mustard seed that's growing to be very big. Small, but it will be big. 
uh, Isaiah, the ninth chapter, right? Says that of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end upon the throne of David, and the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will accomplish it. Daniel sees in Nebuchadnezzar's dream the stone cut without hands growing until it fills the earth. Isaiah says the mountain of the Lord will rise up higher and all nations will flow into it. Okay, so all these growth images are there both in the Old and the New Covenant. Um, I'm afraid that our outlook and our preaching is sometimes too negative and too pessimistic. Uh, we sometimes forget that Christ did not come into this world primarily to be the judge of the world, though he will indeed be its judge. He did not come to judge the world. We hear preachers, hellfire preachers, and I, I guess I'm put in that category by people. I, I believe in preaching about hell, and I believe people should be scared about their sins and the outcome of their lives. We need to remember, however, that the main reason we preach is not to be just some kind of righteous remnant out here telling people, you're going to go to hell, you're going to go to hell. That is true, but the primary reason Jesus came into this world is not to judge it, but to save it. What does he say in John 3, verse 17? He's talking to Nicodemus. Well-known words that follows the best-known verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. Why don't people continue after they recite John 3.16? Finish out the rest of it. Good post-millennial emphasis here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life because God sent not the Son into the world to judge the world. What did he send him into the world to do? That the world should be saved through him. That should be our emphasis. We expect him to be the savior of the world. And that means he's going to do a great work. Probably means church history is a lot longer than you expect. Probably means you have too short a perspective. My friend Roger Wagner, whom you heard preach this last week, once told me, and I haven't forgotten this, I think it's really good. He says, you know, as far as we should be concerned, these are just the infant days of the church. We have been so conditioned by everybody to think we live in the end times. It's almost over and only a few more years to go. Why? Why? Well, how do we know that God has only accomplished just that little bit so far and that he intends to do a great deal more? The only way you can answer it is by looking at the scriptures. And if you look at the scriptures, I suggest there's a lot more work to be done. Jesus' enemies are going to be subdued. His kingdom is going to dominate all areas of life. The poor will one day be taken care of. Justice will be established. He will lead it to victory, as Isaiah said, and Matthew quotes for us. And um, I'm out of time, but maybe I should just tell you, I have here a list of verses I wanted to go through. I would say there's probably 35 or 40 just on this one list that I thought we'd look at just to get some idea that Jesus is not done working. He still is subduing his enemies, and the Bible tells us to expect it to happen. But what I will end on is a quotation that I just happened to stumble on this afternoon, I, 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 to be honest with you, but it was just too good to pass up, from William Plummer, who was a Presbyterian commentator and writer, who um, wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews in 1872. And I just want you to hear what Plummer says about this verse we've been studying. This is great. He says, we need not fear our foes. And Dr. Bonson needs to hear that message this week. We've, we've gone through a lot of hassle and opposition to our ministry and to the church, I mean, to the school that we want to get started and so forth. Plummer says, we don't need to fear our foes. They are all Christ's enemies, and he will subdue every one of them. 
men who wickedly refuse to be trophies of his grace and would insult him and again crown him with thorns shall be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. Wicked angels who hate his person and oppose the progress of his kingdom shall at last sincerely, though reluctantly, confess that war on the Lamb is a failure. Yea, the whole powers of wickedness shall be overthrown, and sin and death and hell shall be cast into the lake of fire. Then he quotes John Owen. It is the foundation of all consolation to the church that the Lord Christ, even now in heaven, takes all our enemies to be his, in whose destruction he is infinitely more concerned than we are. <laughs> Envy not the condition of the most proud and cruel adversaries of the church. End of quote. One aspect of Christ bringing his foes to his footstool, especially cheering to the gracious heart, the missionary cause. It does look as if the harvest of many populous nations was almost ripe. Old superstitions are losing their power. Spiritual despotisms are disarming or disarmed. Whole nations have been converted in the lifetime of some of our old people. God's word runs very swiftly. Converts from heathenism are becoming earnest and successful heralds of the cross. Men are wondering and inquiring what these things mean. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Glory be to God. Better far is it for men to bow to the scepter of love than to be broken to shivers by the rod of wrath. He wrote that in 1872, over 100 years ago. It was once taken for granted that that's the perspective of all good Calvinists. The missionary cause is showing that Jesus is subduing his enemies, and those who will not be subdued will suffer the consequences. Boy, if we get that vision again, maybe our missions program won't be as weak and as faltering as we see it all about us. Yes? Um, in this regard, I especially like the way the book of Acts is set, where it starts with the ascension of Christ. There's a study on this that I just entitled the study, um, Subduing the Earth. and finishes in the 28th verse by saying, This salvation of God is unto the Gentiles. They will hear. That's right. That's, that's our perspective, too. Jesus has established a kingdom. He's going to be victorious. The Gentiles will hear it. He will lead justice to victory. You know, and you get that perspective, and people can't stop you. And you see, it's not important that we pump ourselves up with vain hopes and human imaginations. But when God says, look, the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will accomplish it, you better believe it. He's going to do it. Well, I think in John's terminology, the world is the uh, domain of Satan and rebellion against God. The significance of John 3.16, God so loved the world, is, I think, properly, as Warfield said, not that God's love is so broad, but that it is so deep. Look how far God went down to find people to save. He went to the world, the place of Satan's domain. And Jesus came into the world. He came in the midst of this evil, wicked system, not that he might judge it, at least not primarily, but that rather he should turn it around, that he should save it. Okay, I've taken you over time. I'm sorry. If I had my way, we'd go another hour just looking at these verses, but maybe we'll do that another time. If nothing else, just remember this. Jesus' high priestly work is done. Romanism is wrong. Arminianism is wrong. The work is done. Praise God. I'm saved. I can be confident of it. And he sat down, and where he sat indicates he intends to be the king over all. And praise God, that means the work I do for him is not in vain. Nothing I do 
is going to be in vain because he's using every bit of it to advance his kingdom in this world. Doug, would you lead us in prayer? Father, we do rejoice before you this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the confidence that we do have that you are extending your kingdom through the mediatorial <coughs> We pray thank you that you use us as tools in crushing your enemies and seeing many converted to you. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen our denomination and your people throughout the world, that we might have this vision of obedience and confidence in you. We thank you for this evening, Jesus. Amen.